Not yet? I can, I can, say, I can yell. <laughs> no, that, now we're on. That's really good. Well, welcome, everyone. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, it's a blessing to be with you. I, I thought we would open our time together in prayer uh, before we turn to the Word of God. So let's pray. Our Father, we, we rejoice that we are uh, your children. We, we thank you that you have called us to yourself. And we thank you for, for these lives that have come for, for various reasons, from various places, to the Impact Bible Conference. And I pray that you would be using this weekend, using your word, using your people to impact uh, their lives for the truth, for the gospel, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that there are some who don't know you. I know that there are many who do. And I pray that you would uh, use this time in particular to help these precious young men and women know what it means to follow Christ truly and really, and that you would overwhelm them with the beauty of your own glory that, that would compel them to delightful service to you all the days of their life, that they would not find uh, the allurements of the world, of the flesh, of Satan himself, uh, that they would not find them tempting and satisfying and tantalizing, but they would see them for the filth that they are, for the, the false pleasures that they are, for the lies that they are, and that they would find all their satisfaction in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we turn to your word, that, that this seminar would help them in that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. And I do want to say that it is a, a, a pleasure for me to, to be with you this morning. It's always a privilege for me to speak God's word to young people because it was when I was your age, uh, just before, about a month before I turned 15, that I, the Lord opened my eyes to the ugliness of sin and the fruitlessness of sin and to the loveliness and the beauty and the, of the glory of Jesus. And I thought that I was saved uh, since I was a very young child. I, I grew up going to church for the most part and uh, had always believed the facts of the gospel, but it wasn't until I was 15 that the Lord showed me I was not living the life of a Christian. I said I was saved, but my life wasn't marked by bearing fruits in keeping with repentance, like John says in Luke 3.8. I gave lip service to Jesus. I gave him a hat tip every once in a while, but I wanted to be the Lord of my life. And I recognize that some of you might be in a similar spot today. You know, you've grown up around Christianity. Your parents take you to church. You, you come to conferences like this because Either you have to or because it's a nice place to hang out with friends you don't see all the time. But if you're honest with yourself, you're no genuine follower of Christ. You still want to be the Lord of your own lives. And my prayer for you is that you would hear God's word this morning, that, that from God's word, that the kind of life that, call, that Christ calls his followers to lead. And that if that's not the life you're leading, that you would recognize that. And that you would realize that you're not a Christian and that you would repent and trust in Christ truly. And then others of you are genuine Christians. You've counted the cost of following Jesus. And by His grace, you're laying aside everything that hinders and, and you're pressing hard to run the race that has been set before you. And my aim for you in this seminar is to just encourage you, to strengthen you, uh, to, to, to strengthen your resolve and your commitment to be faithful to Christ in a world that is eager to see you abandon him and as earnestly as your parents and your pastors and your youth group leaders and and maybe some of your teachers as earnestly as they'll labor to see you live lives of enduring commitment to christ 
of faithfulness to Scripture, of moral integrity. The world that you're getting ready to be sent out into will labor just as fervently to keep you from, from doing all of those things, to keep all of those things from marking your life. Enduring commitment to Christ, biblical fidelity, and moral integrity are values that are simply not tolerated in our culture today. So the moral integrity that seeks to maintain purity in our relationships is made fun of as old-fashioned prudishness, while slavery to lust and to self-gratification is celebrated as personal freedom. And the moral integrity that serves others is mocked as weakness, while the ruthless pursuit of success and recognition, no matter who you've got to step on, is honored as ambition and good leadership skills. Faithfulness to Scripture has been redefined as bigotry and intolerance, so that if you believe what the Bible actually says on any number of topics, you are just a, an outdated, hateful bigot. The loving proclamation of the truth that warns people of the consequences of sin and points them away from destruction and toward free salvation in Jesus is rejected as hate speech, literally. So that you can be sued for speaking the truth. And the world is so opposed to your enduring commitment to Christ that there is a full-scale assault on religious liberty from the highest halls of government, both yours and mine. The world is trying to stomp out any commitment to Christ that tries to enter the public square. You can be a Christian in your churches. You can be a Christian at home. But if you try to bring Christian truth, biblical morality, a biblical worldview to bear on your life in the public square, you might go to jail in, in, in the next, in the, before your lifetime is over. Not now. We're not there yet. But the trajectory is, is heading that direction. There have been several examples of this in the States. I'll just mention one of them. Uh, because of uh, this couple's commitment to a biblical definition of marriage, in other words, they believe that marriage exists only between one man and one woman for life. Uh, they, they were bakers. They ran a, a business of you know, making cakes and pastries and things like that. And a, a homosexual couple asked them to make them a, a wedding cake for their, their wedding. And this particular bakery had served this particular couple number of times and just making them cakes, making them pastries for whatever reasons. But this couple at this point felt that they could not make a, a wedding cake because they felt that that was celebrating what the Lord Jesus has, and, and, and through his word, has identified as sinful. So they would serve this couple. They were not saying, oh, well, you're homosexual, so I won't even serve you. They just said, for this, I cannot celebrate with you what, what the Lord Jesus calls sin. And as a result, that couple was sued by that homosexual couple. The, the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they decided that uh, they were to be fined $135,000, which effectively put this couple out of business, and they've had to close their shop. So if you want to act on Christian convictions in the public square, we, you, you'll not be tolerated, at least in some corners of the, the Western world. What that shows, at least, is just one example. I mean, there was numerous examples, florists and, and, and others. But the world has an active interest in getting rid of young people enduringly committed to Christ, who are faithful to Scripture, and who live lives of moral integrity, and who contribute to the kingdom of God. Why? Why is that so important for them? Because those kinds of values 
are a threat to the unencumbered pursuit of their sin. And so they've got to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't, nobody wants people like you running up to them saying, hey, you can't do that because it's against God's word. <laughs> Leave me alone, man. I'm going to just let me live my life. And the more that you are, are resolvedly committed to being that kind of light to the darkness, the more they're going to try to snuff you out. Paul's statement to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 has never been more applicable to us than in this generation. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so if you're going to be equipped for a life of enduring commitment to Christ in the midst of our society, you're going to need to be equipped to suffer for Christ's sake in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. If you're going to persevere in a life of sacrificial service to a world that is actively hostile to you and to your Savior, you need to be equipped with a sound theology of Christian suffering. And you have to ask yourself, okay, is that me? Is that what I'm signing up for? Because if that's what Christians do, if that's what happens to Christians, I've got to count the cost if I'm going to go ahead and follow Christ into that. Or if I'm going to say, you know what? He's just not worth it. I'm going to go with the flow. And so the text that I've chosen to to bring to you this morning uh, is Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, where Paul seeks to lay just such a foundation for the Philippians. Now, the Philippians had been transformed by the gospel. They were no longer slaves of Caesar. Philippi was a Roman colony under the Roman emperor. Caesar, uh, at the time, was, was their lord. You confessed Caesar is lord if you were in the Roman Empire, just like you confessed Jesus is lord if you were in the church. But they had been converted, and so now they were faithful slaves no longer of Caesar, but of Christ. And their identity was no longer as devoted citizens of the Roman Empire. They were now citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20. They've been called out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light, and so they they face hostility from the darkness around them. And we read in Philippians 1, 28, just just a verse ahead of where we're at this morning, we read of their opponents, in no way alarmed by your opponents. So there are people who are opposing them. Verse 29 speaks of suffering for Christ's sake. Verse 30, about the conflict they're experiencing. And so it's in the context of this opposition that they're facing from the world around them that Paul calls them to, verse 27, to conduct yourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So you see, they are to live lives that are driven by the gospel. You are to live lives that are not just saved by the gospel, but are driven by the gospel. And specifically, that means they are, in verse 27, to stand firm in one spirit. They're to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And they're to be, verse 28, in no way alarmed by their opponents. They were to hold their ground amidst attacks to compromise. They were to continue in their mission of spreading the gospel behind enemy lines in the Roman Empire. And they were to do it all without so much as flinching. Because the King of Heaven remains on His throne. And he is infinitely more powerful than any opposing force could ever dream to be. And so then, in verses 29 and 30, Paul throws more fuel on the fire of the Christian's fearlessness in the face of opposition to the gospel. And he writes this in our passage, Philippians 1, 29 and 30. 
For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So what we have in this text are four truths about Christian suffering. Four truths about Christian suffering that increase believers' resolve to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Because both for the Philippians and for us, part of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel is to suffer in a manner worthy of the Gospel. And my prayer for you is that properly understanding these four truths about Christian suffering will put a holy fire in your eyes will put steel in your spine so that when the hostility of the world comes, you have the the spiritual backbone, the undeterred fearlessness in the face of that suffering and can thereby be equipped to live and suffer in a manner worthy of the Gospel, in a manner worthy of your Savior. So that first truth, number one, is that suffering is a mark of Christian identity. Suffering is a mark of of Christian identity. And the key to understanding this is to see the close connection between believing in Christ and suffering for Christ's sake in verse 29. Look at the text. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And so we learn from this that suffering is a mark of Christian identity. And that teaching is all over the New Testament. Jesus Himself says it in John fifteen nineteen. You can just write these references down. Don't have to turn there. He says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Apostle Peter wrote to suffering Christians in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes on you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. You hear that reasoning? Don't be surprised as if persecution were a strange thing. This is normal for a follower of Jesus. If they persecute Him, they're going to persecute His followers. And this is stated nowhere more clearly than the text that I read just a moment ago, 2 Timothy 3.12, where Paul states plainly and emphatically, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no wiggle room there. It's not all Christians in Muslim-majority countries will be persecuted. It's not all pastors and missionaries will be persecuted. It's not all super-evangelistic, super-spiritual, super-Christians are going to be persecuted. No, all who desire just to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Because the darkness hates the light. Because the kind of life that's commanded of those who would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel indicts the sinful lifestyle of the world by exposing it in the life of holy living. Imagine you're alone and you're doing something shameful, something you don't want anybody to know that you're doing. And all of a sudden, one of your friends comes in and bursts the door open and all the light shows up and, they, and everybody comes and sees what you're doing in, in, in secret and in shame. You're mortified. And you, you, right, right at then, you hate that person for jump, bursting in the door and throwing light on your shameful activity. In the same way, 
the Christian who stands for Christ is like that with the darkness of the world. We come bursting forth and we throw light on on the evil of their deeds and they say, don't expose my wickedness like that. I'm a good person. And they hate it. They hate you. Now you ask, how is telling the Philippians that suffering is certain supposed to comfort and strengthen them in the face of persecution? Well, it's comforting because Paul is telling them that suffering for Christ in the way that they have been suffering and the way that they'll continue to suffer is an identifying mark of one who truly belongs to Christ. It's been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering the way that these believers were suffering marks them out as genuinely Christian. So John Calvin, the great reformer, put it beautifully in his commentary on this passage. He says, persecutions are in a manner seals of adoption of the children of God if they endure them with fortitude and patience. Their adoption can no more be separated from sufferings than Christ can be separated from Himself. Suffering for Christ's sake is the seal of our adoption. Do you guys have family crests? You know, I know that the certain Celtic cultures, the Irish and Scottish have these, these family emblems that represent their, their, the colors of their ancestry. Calvin says, suffering is our family crest. Suffering is the seal of our adoption. Our last name that marks us as, as identifying marks of, of the family we have, of God that we belong to. Our last name is suffering. It's our birthright. It's our badge of authenticity. Again, back to 1 Peter 4. Don't be surprised if this was something strange. But 1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, Peter says, keep on rejoicing. And verse 14, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so this hostility that you experience at the hands of the adversaries of the gospel is, Philippians 1.28, a sign of your salvation. For, because, to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Because the God who has given you His salvation has, with that salvation, also graced you to be Christ's people in the world, which means that you will suffer for His sake, just as He suffered for your sake. And so the question that you've got to ask yourself is that if suffering for Christ's sake is a mark of Christian identity... Am I suffering for His sake? And I don't mean, are you being martyred and are you being thrown into prison and are you being physically abused because you say you're a Christian? Like I say, you guys might live long enough to see that happen. But I'm not saying that that's the only kind of persecution. I'm speaking about the unavoidable social ostracism, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, I I tend to talk in big words sometimes. But ostracism is the idea of, of making you feel weird. It's mocking. It's, it's uh, making you feel like you're on the outside, you know. Oh, you, you're a Christian. You stand over there. You believe this about marriage. You believe this about transgenderism. You believe this about uh, any number of things. I don't want to be your friend. You, you go sit at, the, you go sit at the, the weird lunch table. Are you experiencing that? Is there anything from the enemies of darkness that recognizes this is the light, I don't want them exposing me, you go sit over there. Is anything like that happening? 
Or can you fit right in? I mean, you go to church on Sundays, you come to conferences like this because you have to. But for the rest of your time in the world, are you just right at home? Just as comfortable as can be. Yeah, these are my people. The enemies of Christ, the enemies of righteousness, I fit right in. Have you so domesticated your faith? Have you so compartmentalized your relationship with Christ that no one can tell the difference between you, a professed follower of Jesus, and a pagan or an unbeliever who loves and serves himself? Jesus says in Matthew 5.15, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. So do you stick out as light among the darkness? Or can you just get along just fine in the world because you've been unwilling to stand publicly for anything that would bring any inconvenience for Christ's sake? You need to get honest with yourselves because this kind of convenient socially acceptable, spectator kind of Christianity that provokes no hostility from the enemies of the gospel, Paul says that is a sham. That is a phony faith. That kind of Christianity will never take you to heaven because to you, genuine believers, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering is a mark of Christian identity. Secondly, suffering for Christ's sake is a gift of divine grace. It is a gift of divine grace. Look with me again at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe but to suffer. Now, we've established that suffering inevitably comes to the true believer in Christ. But the question is, where does it come from? Does suffering originate merely in the hostility of the opponents themselves? Does suffering come from a random and chaotic, uncontrolled universe so that we just have drawn the short straw and we need to make the best of things? Does suffering come from some impersonal governing force like fate? So, well, this is my lot in life. I just got to grin and bear it. Does suffering ultimately come from Satan or demons? Ultimately, we have to answer no to all of those questions. Ultimately, suffering comes from God. Say, how do you know that? Well, a couple reasons. One is that Scripture calls God the one who works all things after the counsel of His own will, Ephesians 1.11. He works all things after His plan. And we know, Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good who, to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. God causes all things to work together for good, not just the good things, not just the easy things. And that, that notice that that verse does not say God turns all the bad things into good things for those who love Him. Like, you know, God just makes the best of a bad hand He was dealt you know, it was really Satan's fault, but God takes Satan's sovereignty and he works it out for good. No, God ordains all things for his purpose to glorify himself. And isn't that exactly what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? He says to his brothers, you meant it for evil. You sold me into slavery and you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
just as actively as the brothers of Joseph meant Joseph's slavery for evil, just as actively God meant it for good. Job says the same thing. The Lord has given all the riches and blessings that I've had, and the Lord has taken away. Job himself says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity from him as well? And as Jeremiah, the prophet, stands in the rubble of the ravaged city of Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian invasion, he asks in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37, he says, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? See, suffering comes ultimately from God Himself. But even if I didn't have all those verses to turn to, you know how else I know that suffering for Christ ultimately comes from God? Because Philippians 1.29 says that it's been granted to us not only to believe, but to suffer. Now, who has granted that we believe? Certainly not the opponents of the gospel. Certainly not Satan. It's God who has granted us faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And so in the same way, it is God who grants us to suffer. And the word grant is the, the Greek verb charizomai from charis, which is the New Testament word for grace. It means to give as a gift, to give freely. Romans 8.32 uses this word where Paul says, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He also not with Him freely give us all things? That's our word. Freely give as a gift. So what Paul is teaching us here is that the suffering that comes upon the people of God as a result of their faithful obedience to Christ in a hostile world, that that suffering is nothing less than a free gift of sovereign grace. And I ask you, does God give poor gifts? Does He give gifts that are without purpose and without wisdom? Does He ever give gifts that are not beneficial for the greatest good of those whom He gives them to? Of course not. You know all of, all of God's gifts are good for the people He gives them to. And this text tells us that suffering is a gift for Christ's sake. A gift of His unmerited favor. You say, what kind of favor is that? Suffering? Uh, I'll take blessing. How about that for a gift? Well, if you're thinking that, I want, you to know that the, well, I want you to know that the apostles would have had no idea what you were talking about. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. The Jewish rulers had already thrown the apostles into prison for violating the command not to preach any longer in the name of Jesus. But the angel of the Lord comes in the middle of the night and He frees them from the jail. And the next morning they're back in the temple preaching. And so the Jews call them before the council again. And after some discussion about what should be done to them, Acts chapter 5, verse 40, it says they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. They beat them and said, shut up, don't do this anymore. So verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, gloomy and sad and wondering if they should really be Christians. No, that's not what it says. They went on their way from the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
Our generation of professing Christians seeks to run from shame as far and as fast as possible, as if it was a pure, unmixed evil. Again, I remember 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, and the notion of being shamed in front of my friends was about the worst thing in the world that could ever happen. I understand that you might feel this way. But the apostles were rejoicing that they could suffer shame for Christ's name. That they had been considered worthy to receive the divine favor of suffering shame for the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we bridge that gap, ladies and gentlemen? How do we come from the worst thing you could do is sit me up in front of my school and make fun of me to I rejoice that you might make fun of me in front of everybody for the sake of Jesus. May God grant that we would see, that you would see the glory that the apostles saw. That that we would be so satisfied, like they were, so satisfied by Christ that we could count it a privilege to meet the world's shame if it means that we could put His glory on display. Years after being flogged that day, Peter could write again, 1 Peter 4, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And again, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. I'm suffering. I'm being made fun of. I'm being ostracized. I'm being put out. I'm being isolated for Jesus' sake. Not because I'm a jerk. Not because I'm weird. Not because I'm annoying. But for Jesus' sake, because I've actually spoken up and preached the gospel. That's glorious. That's the family name. That's the seal of my adoption. See, we don't think like that naturally. And so you have to ask yourself, what did these men and women see in Christ that I don't see? What did did they treasure that I don't treasure? (laughs) Suffering for Christ provides us a wonderful opportunity to put the worth and sufficiency of Christ on display. And I need you to understand that. Suffering gives us an opportunity to magnify Jesus by being more satisfied by Him than by all that this world can offer and all that death can take. Because when you experience the loss of friends or the loss of a good reputation or the loss of being able to sit at the cool table because of Jesus, you preach to them that Jesus is more satisfying than the cool table. Jesus is more satisfying than a worldly reputation. And you magnify Him. You say, how, how can that young lady, how can that young man lose all that we in this school or we in this job find valuable and be okay with it? Because he or she has a Savior that's worth more than all of that to them. That's more glorious, more satisfying than that. Some of you are familiar with that hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. And I wonder if you remember the the third verse of that. It says, His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. So John Piper writes, If we hold fast to Him when all around our soul gives way, then we show that He is more to be desired than all that we have lost. Does it make sense? If we can lose everything and stay solidly grounded and committed to Christ, we show that Christ is more valuable than 
all that we have lost. And magnifying Christ, showing that He is more desired, more to be desired than all that we could lose, is what we were created to do. It's a gift to suffer on behalf of Christ. It's a a gracious gift of unmerited favor to be given the, the privilege of being prisms through which we reflect the glory of Jesus to the world. And so when suffering and persecution come from those who oppose Christ and His gospel, and when it gets hard, and when it hurts, and when it threatens those things and those people that you treasure most dearly, don't try to save God from His sovereignty by thinking that those trials originate from somewhere other than your Father. Don't cut the legs out from under the very theology of sovereign grace upon which you stand. See, you would destroy the very comfort that you need in the midst of suffering if you did that. There's another great hymn that says, Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, whatever happens to me, Jesus doeth all things well. Listen to that. Where do heavenly peace and divine comfort come from? From the knowledge that whatever happens, Jesus, the sovereign Lord, is doing it. That He does all things well. So don't try to save God from His sovereignty and then in the same breath steal your heavenly peace and divine comfort. You have a question? It's called... um, uh, anybody, Grant, help me out. Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. I'll find out. It's slipping my mind right now. Man, that's going to bother me. Oh, well, I should know it. I'll find it out for you. But, but, yeah. So, the whole point of that is, Jesus doeth all things well. Don't, so, heavenly peace, divinest comfort, Jesus does this, not Jesus allows this or Jesus, you know, makes the best of a bad situation or Jesus is sort of, you know, loosely in control of this, but he's doing this. And so you can receive suffering then when you experience that difficulty, you can receive it as a gift from the hand of your father, not from something that your father's looking at you going, you know, I tried to prevent this, but, but I, you know, Satan is pretty strong and the world is pretty powerful and i you know i don't want to mess with free will so i don't want to get involved no the father grants suffering and when you know that you can suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel so suffering is a mark of christian identity suffering is a gift of divine grace number three the third truth about christian suffering that paul teaches us in this text is that suffering is endured for christ's sake it is endured for christ's sake read verse 29 with me again For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And you hear that repetition. You hear that twice in the same sentence. You have for Christ's sake on behalf of Christ. So the suffering that we're talking about is the hostility that believers face, particularly as a result of opposition to the gospel. This is persecution in the more narrow sense. Now, the Bible has glorious truths and promises about how to respond righteously to the everyday headaches and heartaches of life. And certainly the truths that we observe in this text can teach us how we can apply them legitimately to those kinds of circumstances. But 
the, sur- the suffering that we're looking at in Philippians chapter 1 and in much of the New Testament is suffering that is endured on behalf of Christ. For the sake of time, we won't turn to all these texts, but, but listen to this repeated emphasis as I, as I read them. Matthew 5, 10, and 11. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when all people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Then Mark 10, 29. Jesus again says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he'll receive a hundred times. And one, we've come back again multiple times already, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16. Don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you, he says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but to, to glorify God in this name. And so when I say that we need to shine as lights in a dark world, I don't mean that we simply need to live differently in some generic general sense. You cannot legitimately claim these promises of comfort for for suffering for the sake of a generic morality that holds doors, that pulls out chairs, that doesn't use foul language, that smiles and says please and thank you and is generally respectful of people. Friends, on on a horizontal human level, Any unbeliever can be nice. No, what Paul is calling us to is the kind of suffering that happens on behalf of Christ. And when I say that we need to avoid this convenient kind of Christianity that provokes no hostility from the world, I don't mean that provoking hostility in itself is a virtue. If you suffer hostility from the world because you're belligerent or annoying, or if you stick out from the world just because you're a strange person. That's not Christian suffering. I love what one preacher said about this. He says, this suffering for Christ's sake is not a Christian kookishness that counts it the highest virtue to go around disturbing people by being different. No, this is suffering particularly and specifically as a result of our attachment to and likeness to and commitment to Christ. And so our suffering is to be endured by Christ's sake. For the sake of our Savior. And I would say, would you not agree that that gives us strength to endure these trials? Because for those of you who know Jesus, is there anything that you can't endure for His sake? If He said to you, my child, please go through this for me. Could you refuse Him? Could you refuse the Lamb of God who bore the wrath of His Father on the cross in your place, purified, reconciled, impure, unholy, treasonous rebels like you and me? To bear reproach for His sake? We, we who know Him know that that is no trouble at all. In fact, it's an honor. And we, we can ask ourselves, what are the frowns of a few fellow mortals if I can know the smile of Almighty God? If I can know Him, if I can walk more closely and more intimately with the Savior who is my greatest treasure, the very foundation of all my joy and all my satisfaction, surely, followers of Jesus, we can endure suffering for His sake. 
And then to the fourth truth. Not only that suffering is a mark of Christian identity, not only that it's a gift of divine grace, not only that suffering is endured for Christ's sake, but number four, suffering is a means to sweet fellowship. Suffering is a means to sweet fellowship. Look with me at verse 30 of Philippians chapter 1. It is granted to you to suffer, he says, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And what we see here in verse 30 is what one writer called a masterful, masterful stroke of pastoral comfort on the part of the Apostle Paul. See, the Philippians would have remembered like it was yesterday the beatings and the imprisonment that Paul suffered at the hands of the crowds in their city. You could read about those in Acts 16. And now they're hearing about the fearlessness that he's, in, that he's having in the midst of these sufferings. He's imprisoned, waiting to see if he'll die or be let, you know, whether Caesar will let him live or whether he'll execute him. And they're hearing about how fearless he is in the midst of those sufferings, his resolve to magnify Christ, he says in Philippians 1, 19 to 21, whether by Christ or, or whether by life, rather, or by death. They're, they'd be encouraged at hearing how the, that even the Roman soldiers that are guarding him in prison are being converted. And as they think of all that Paul endured for the sake of the gospel, they'd come to regard Paul just like we do, as a hero, as a hero of the faith. And Paul's saying, you are now experiencing the very same conflicts. You and I are brothers in arms. And they would have been thrilled to hear that. I mean, think of somebody that you just, you just look up to. Think of somebody that, whether it's, you know, you're, you play sports and it's somebody who's, you, you admire in, the, in the, the realm of sports. For me, you know, that would be uh, Derek Jeter. I grew up as a Yan- New York Yankees fan. And Derek Jeter was the, the, the great baseball player, the captain of the New York Yankees. And if I was playing baseball and he said something to me like, like, like if I knew that I was Jeter's teammate, you know, that he considered me someone who was contributing to the team. That would be amazing. You guys have cricket or whatever else you have. You know, think of it, think of someone that you would really admire and you say, okay, here's somebody who's coming down to my level and saying, you're on my team. I'm with you. You're with me. The Philippians looked, that was Paul to them. He was the guy on the poster that was slam dunking over somebody. I mean, this was the apostle Paul was the hero of the faith and they would have been thrilled to hear Now, you're facing the same conflict as me. We are brothers in arms. Because there's a sweet fellowship that exists between brothers and sisters who suffer together in the cause of Christ. And knowing that Paul regarded them as having that same kind of fellowship with him, it would have strengthened them to stand firm, to continue striving together, to be courageous, to be undaunted in the face of opposition. And so it should be no different for us. We should be fearless in the face of opposition, because we know that suffering on behalf of Christ is a means to sweet fellowship with all of our brothers and sisters throughout history, all of the faithful soldiers of Christ who have been despised and forsaken by the world just the same. I don't know if any of you are students of church history. I would encourage you to become students of church history, to pick up a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and and read about how Men and women who believe the same things that we do, who trust the same Savior that we trust, could go to their death singing hymns to Christ. Heroes of the faith like Justin Martyr, whose name Martyr 
was given to him because he was among the first of those who died as a witness for Jesus. Polycarp of Smyrna, who was 80 years old, and the martyrdom of Polycarp in Fox's Book of Martyrs is one of the most just thrilling and, and, and strengthening accounts of, of faith in the midst of death that you could read. Ignatius of Antioch, William Tyndale, who was persecuted just because he wanted to translate the Bible into English so people could understand it. John Huss, Martin Luther, John Rogers, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley burned at the stake in Oxford, John Knox, all of these wonderful men and women, for you young ladies, if you've, ever, if you've never heard of Lady Jane Grey, you should pick up the biography of uh, Lady Jane Grey by Faith Cook. It's a wonderful story. Lady, Lady Jane Grey was martyred as a 16-year-old girl in England who debated, debated theology with a Roman Catholic priest who was trying to convert her so that she wouldn't have to die. But she maintained uh, her convictions upon the, the Protestant gospel of salvation by faith alone and the, the, the sole authority of the Scriptures. We need more Lady Jane Grey's among our young women in churches, people, young ladies who are going to stand with backbones of steel against conviction and who could argue theology better than a Roman Catholic priest. Lady Jane Grey, Faith Cook. So all of these people and thousands of others of whom the world was not worthy, who the Bible says love not their lives even unto death, these are our brothers and sisters in arms. These are our fellow soldiers. And even for us, suffering is not just a means of sweet fellowship with other believers, but with the the Apostle Paul himself. Again, he's our hero. Here's a man who laid his life down to travel the known world, endured all manner of hostility, who wrote half the New Testament, and who's a spiritual hero to every Christian who ever lived. And we can lay our lives down for the same gospel mission that he suffered for. I don't know about you, that, that wakes me up in the morning. I can lay my life down for the same gospel as the Apostle Paul. And so I would just ask you, do you want your lives to count for something? Don't you want to live so that you don't waste your life? Don't don't you want to invest yourselves to, to spend and be spent for something that's truly worthwhile in this world? Something that's going to outlast this world where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal? I mean, talk about being part of something that's bigger than yourselves, right? We can be engaged in the very same conflict as the Apostle Paul himself, provided that we are willing to lay our lives down to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in a way that cuts straight across the grain of what the world says we ought to look like. And it gets even better than that. The suffering that you experience for Christ's sake not only provides you with the opportunity for unique an intimate fellowship with other faithful soldiers of Christ, both now and throughout the ages, it also provides you with the, with the opportunity for a unique and intimate fellowship with Christ Himself. See, when we become willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to preach His gospel, to walk in holiness as He walked in holiness, we will provoke that same hostility from sinners against us as the sinners who were hostile against Him. And in counting Christ more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take, we suffer for the same cause of righteousness as the Lord Himself, as the Creator of the universe, as the author and perfecter of our faith. See, that's what it means in Philippians 3.10 
to know the fellowship of His sufferings. Look at Philippians 3.10. Or 3... Starting in... in, uh, Yeah, no, 3.10. Paul says, That I may know Him. I want to know Him. And I want to know the power of His resurrection. And you think, great, power of His resurrection. Resurrection power. I want to know that. And then he says, And the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. See, there's a camaraderie. There's a unique intimacy that we can have with our Savior by sharing in the sufferings that He experienced. We know the fellowship of His sufferings. And that should be an enormous amount of fuel to lay down our lives, to lay down our safe, comfortable lives and to lose our lives for Christ's sake. And to lose them for the sake of the gospel. It is worth enduring all manner of hostility, all manner of unpleasant circumstances, if we get to know Him more intimately because of them. If we get to know more and see more of Jesus that we wouldn't know and see if we kept ourselves in our safe Christian bubble or or if we just kept our mouths silent so we looked just like the world. Men and women, are you willing to lay your life down for Christ? Not to just die for Him in some romantic storybook you know, martyrdom, but are you willing to lay down your life living for Him? Are you willing to go out to Him and bear His reproach? That's the language of Hebrews 13. I want you to turn to Hebrews 13 and we'll end with this. Hebrews chapter 13, verses starting, starting in verse 11. And I'll introduce it a little bit here. All throughout... The book of Hebrews, the writer is drawing parallels between the Old Testament sacrifices and the Lord Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. And in chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, he makes the point that just as the sacrifices in Israel were burned outside the camp, a place signifying uh, signifying a place of uncleanness and shame that was cut off from the community of God's people, so in the same way, Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp of Israel in hostile territory. Jesus suffered outside the camp, just like those old sacrifices were burned outside the camp. It was a place of uncleanness and shame. So Hebrews, and then in verse 13 and 14, he gives the implications of that for the church. So let me read, starting in verse 11 of of Hebrews 13. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now listen to what he says here. So, let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. See, we are to leave the securities and comforts of the camp and we are to go out and bear Christ's reproach. But the magnificent sweetness of this verse is that we don't just go out, but that we go out to Him, the text says. We go out to Him. He is out there on that road of suffering. Jesus is out there waiting for you on that path of suffering that you endure for the sake of the gospel. Jesus doesn't say, hey, go walk that path of suffering and I'll be over here 
relaxing in heaven. Jesus has gone himself on that path of suffering. He himself has walked that path and he is calling us to come and enjoy the sweetness of the fellowship of his sufferings. And in response to that call, another hymn writer, this one is called Jesus, I, my cross have taken. He said that that writer, it's actually a lady named Charity Bancroft. She says, go then, go then earthly fame and treasure. Ask yourself if you could sing this in the integrity of your heart. Go then earthly fame and treasure come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. With thy favor, loss is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul says. He says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Can you say that? Have you seen Christ with the eyes of your heart so clearly that you can say, go earthly fame and treasure. I don't want fame and treasure. I want disaster, scorn, and pain because in Christ's service, pain is pleasure because I get to know Him. With His favor, loss is gain. I can lose friends. I can lose reputation. I could lose my job maybe. I could lose money and possessions and treasure. I can lose the reputation of, of uh, a fine, upstanding citizen of New Zealand. I can lose everything because if I lose it for Christ's sake, I've gained the world. I've gained everything that matters. That's the life of a Christian. That's not the life of super spiritual pastors. That's the life of a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. And I'm asking you, will you follow him? Is that you? Have you counted the cost? And are you willing to lay down everything that it costs to follow Jesus? Because Jesus says, nobody can be my disciple who doesn't give up everything that he's got. It's not pay a bunch of money to be my my disciple. But if you can't loosen the grip of your heart on everything in this life, and latch your heart onto the loveliness of Jesus, says you're not worthy of being my disciple. If you're sitting here and you're saying, God, I don't know if that's me. That's a heck of a high standard. That's not a standard I hear held out to me every day. I want you to recognize that He Himself, Lord Jesus Christ Himself, has met that standard for you. He has suffered for you. He has gone already on the path of obedience, on the path of suffering. He's already suffered outside the gate. Everything that you need to do to qualify has been accomplished for you by Him. And you just need to receive it. You just With the empty, open hand of faith that says, I can't do it. I trust that He's done it. And I receive that. Lord, I am not someone who has... Who has been willing to stand aside from the crowd for you. I repent of that. And I trust in you to give me all the strength necessary to to, to show me the beauty of your glory, to fuel me to that kind of commitment. Would you help me? Would you make me a disciple of Jesus? You can pray that. You can get on your face and beg the Lord for, for that kind of sight of Christ. 
And you could go from this place changed, ready to meet the world's shame, ready to meet whatever anybody throws at you because you know you could lose it all and and gain Christ and you've gained everything. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit and capture hearts this moment. I pray that you would breathe over this group of young men and women and, and grant the miracle of the new birth. Open blind eyes to see the loveliness of Jesus. Show them the ugliness and the worthlessness of sin and the treasures of this world. Lift up, exalt your Son in their eyes. Grant them the gift of saving faith. And for those who know you, strengthen them, Father. Give them the strength they need to follow Jesus with joy even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult. And when they face the sufferings of of Christ from this world, when they know the fellowship of His sufferings because the ones who hated the Master will hate the slaves, I pray that You would give us unending consolation and comfort that we suffer for the same cause of righteousness that the Lord Jesus, our Savior, our Creator, that our master has suffered and that it would be all the blessing we need to press on. I thank you for what you're doing in this conference, for what you're doing in New Zealand through Riverbend and through the various churches represented here. I pray that you would get what you are worthy of. Save your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.